And today our focus will be on verses 8 through 15 as we taste a little bit of Stephen's ministry, which doesn't really last very long because in the next chapter he's going to get stoned, not with weed, but great big rocks, okay? He's going to die. And so his ministry is quite short-lived, but extremely uh, indispensable in the growth and development of the early church. What we're going to see in today's sermon is how God begins to lay the foundations for the church to move out of Jerusalem and move into the worldwide witness that Jesus called the church to on the day he ascended to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we're going to see that start happening as a result of persecution uh, in the early church. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that the face, his face, was like the face of an angel. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we pray this morning as we again open up the word that rather than standing as a critic over the Word, we might submit ourselves under the Word and let it do its work in us. We have so many defenses. We have so many ways of evading confrontation with you. And we know that your Word sometimes comforts us, sometimes builds us up, gives us grace and liberty and joy, and other times it cuts, it corrects us, it rebukes us, it instructs us. Whatever the Spirit is saying to the church today, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have the story of Stephen, and we met him last week as one of the magnificent seven who was chosen to remedy a flaw in the distribution of, let's say, groceries in the early church. But this man marks sort of the beginning of a new chapter in the history of the church. Up until now, we have seen only the history of the Jerusalem church, and a church in which almost... Everyone is entirely Jewish. 
The day of Pentecost clearly demonstrated that it was God's intention that the gospel go to all peoples and that the church would consist of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And so beginning with Stephen, God prepares this young church for its global outreach. And Stephen's message shows an awareness that the gospel is for everyone. And his death begins a persecution which God designs to force Christianity out into the world. Stephen's message and death also had a great impact upon one who witnessed it, Saul of Tarsus, who became the future St. Paul, who would be the spearhead of God's outreach in the world. And so what I want to do is sort of help you see, sort of stand back from the text in a micro way this morning and sort of look at it in a macro way. That is the big picture. This is a division in, Luke, uh, in Luke's record of the book of Acts in which new things start to happen from chapter 6 onward through about chapter 11. And so in this particular uh, movement, uh, that Luke is writing, we're, we're coming to the place where the church is almost ready to initiate the worldwide mission. So far, it's been uh, composed mostly of Jews and restricted pretty much to Jerusalem. Now, however, the Holy Spirit begins to work to thrust the people out into the wider world, and the Apostle Paul, Luke's hero, is going to be God's chosen instrument to pioneer this big development. But first, the next six chapters in Acts, uh, Luke explains how the foundation of the Gentile mission were laid by two very remarkable men. First, Stephen, the martyr, and then Philip, the evangelist, followed by two remarkable conversions. Saul, the Pharisee, and Cornelius, the centurion. These four men, each in his own way, together with Peter, through whose ministry Cornelius was converted, made an indispensable contribution to the global expansion of the church, honoring the words of Jesus on the day of his ascension, where he says, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And so God uses persecution, here in particular of Stephen, to move the church to follow uh, the plan of God for the new covenant people of God. And so Stephen the martyr comes first. His preaching aroused strenuous Jewish opposition, very much like the Lord Jesus. But in his carefully reasoned defense before the Sanhedrin, he emphasized the freedom of the living God to go where he pleases and to call his people to go forth. And although he fails in his speech, you'll see that next week, to convince the Sanhedrin council and was stoned to death, his martyrdom seems to have had a profound influence upon Saul of Tarsus. It also led to the scattering of the disciples throughout Judea and Samaria. 
So Philip the evangelist had the distinction of being both the first to share the good news with despised Samaritans and the means by which the Jewish Samaritan barrier was broken. He then led the first African to Christ, that is the Ethiopian eunuch, and baptized him. And so the simultaneous conversion and commissioning of Saul the Pharisee were an indispensable prelude to the Gentile mission since he was called to be preeminently the apostle to the Gentiles. Cornelius the centurion was the very first Gentile to be converted and to be welcomed into the church. And so the gift of the Spirit to him plainly authenticated his inclusion in the Messianic community on the same terms as Jews and so overcame the narrow Jewish prejudice of the Apostle Peter. Although it took several blows of the hammer to get that nail in, he eventually got it. Only after these four men have played their part in Luke's developing story was the scene set for the first missionary journey recorded in Acts chapter 13 and 14. So that is the big picture of what's going on as we continue our way through the book of Acts. But the thing I want to call your attention to now is back to Stephen. Let's take another good look at Stephen and see why his ministry was so powerful and effective even though short-lived. The outstanding features of his ministry were as follows. First, he had a firm and clear grasp on the gospel of grace. We can see that from the accusations that are made toward him. This fellow never stopped speaking against the law. This shows that he was proclaiming that we are saved by grace and not by law-keeping. Second, he had remarkable skill in sharing this gospel. We are told that his opponents could not stand up to his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. This certainly means that in open public discussions or debate, seems like Stephen always won for two reasons. On the one hand, his reasoning and answers were compelling. He had wisdom. On the other hand, there was a spirit of confidence and power about him that everyone could see. The spirit by whom he spoke. This means, as we share the gospel with other people, that our nonverbal presence, that is tone of joy and boldness and yet loving sensitivity, is important as our verbal presentation, logic, illustration, brevity, or clarity. But the third thing about him that I find most amazing as I look at Stephen is there was a unique blend and balance of two seemingly opposite qualities. He was full of two things that you usually don't see people full of. He was full of grace and power, verse 8. And this is striking because they seem opposed to one another. A person usually who is very gracious or who is said to be marked by a graceful spirit is usually compassionate, sensitive, and even peaceful. On the other hand, a person who is powerful is generally regarded as forceful, bold, forthright, and direct. How can these two things come together in one person? Well, 
Stephen has the Spirit of Christ, who is both a lion and a lamb. Only the gospel can produce in us this quality of humble boldness. Why does the gospel only provide us with the ability to be both humble and bold, both gracious and powerful? Because if we're saved by our works, we can either be bold but not humble if we're living up to our standards, or we can be humble but not bold if we've been failing our standards. But the gospel tells me and it tells us that we are helpless sinners that creates a humility in us the more you grow in faith. Maturity is about humility. It's about seeing yourself according to reality and rather than growing and maturing to get to a place where I don't need Jesus so desperately, maturity means I see myself needing him more desperately than I could ever imagine. And yet at the same time, the gospel tells us that we are completely accepted in Christ. Therefore, it creates a boldness that does not go away. And thus we see this combination in Stephen of both grace and power. In short, Stephen not only knew the gospel, but he knew the unique character that the gospel produces and it, it, show, it was shown out in his very persona and demeanor when he spoke. Verse 15 tells us that his face was like the face of an angel. He was a man who was just overflowing with the presence of God. He was full. Whenever he spoke, his joy and the deep sense of the reality of gospel richness was obvious to anyone who looked at him. And so... What was the accusation all about? Um, and it, it's, it's, when you look at his uh, opponents, they were uh, quite a crowd. Uh, in spite of all of Stephen's outstanding qualities, his ministry provoked fierce antagonism. We are not told why, but it's explained that the opposition arose from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. Also mentioned are Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. And so the freedmen, the Libertoni, uh, which is really a transliteration from Latin, uh, were freed slaves and their descendants. But who were the Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and Asia? Some think they were composed of different synagogues, but most scholars seeing it referred as only one synagogue. And they had been freed from slavery, and they must have been foreign Jews who had now come to live in Jerusalem. Perhaps those from Cilicia even included Saul of Tarsus. At all events, Stephen's appointment as one of the seven, entrusted with the care of the widows, did not necessitate his resignation as a preacher, for it was to his message that these synagogue members objected. They began to argue with Stephen. But they had not reckoned the caliber of man they were opposing. He was a man full of wisdom, full of the Spirit. And uh, here, a fulfillment of the promise of Jesus was seen fleshed out in Stephen's activity. And so Stephen's opponent, uh, opponents, because they could not 
When the argument, so to speak, started, which is what everybody always does, a smear campaign against him. For when arguments fail, mud has often seemed an excellent substitute. But as a philosophy professor I had in undergraduate school used to say, if you're slinging mud, you're losing ground, which I believe is true. And that's exactly what happened here. So they secretly persuaded, probably by bribery, uh, to allege we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. In this way, they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. And so they seized Stephen and they bring him before the Sanhedrin and then produce false witnesses. They framed him. They lied against him and falsely accused him. Thus the opposition degenerated from theology through slander to violence. The same order of events has often been repeated. Uh, when it fails, people will start a personal campaign of lies. Finally, they resort to legal or quasi-legal action in an attempt to rid themselves of their adversary by force. Let others use these weapons against us. May we be delivered from resorting to them ourselves. But Stephen is accused, and the rumor which had been circulated was that Stephen had blasphemed Moses against God. And now before the Sanhedrin, these false witnesses um, employed the charge or elaborated the charge, this fellow never stops speaking against the holy place and against the law. Now that is an extremely serious and potent accusation. This hit the nerve of the religious people because what they were saying of him is the same thing they said that, of Jesus that got him crucified. And what they said about him was there was nothing more sacred to the Jews of every century and nothing more precious than their temple and their law. The temple was the holy place, the sanctuary of God's presence. The law was the holy scripture, the revelation of God's mind and will. Therefore, since the temple was God's house and the law was God's word, to speak against either was to speak against God, in other words, to blaspheme. But in what sense did Stephen speak against the temple and the law? The first false witnesses said, For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Stephen's words against the temple and the law are thus seen uh, connected to Jesus of Nazareth who said he would do both. But was Stephen right? Was he right? So what did Jesus say about the temple and the law? First he said he would replace the temple. We heard him say, false witnesses has testified, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days build another not made by man. His hearers thought he meant this literally and asked, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But John's comments, the temple he had spoken of was his body. Both his resurrection body, which he was raised on the third day, and also his spiritual body, the church, which would take place of the material temple. 
The temple had served its purpose. The temple had now become obsolete, replaced by Jesus himself as the true temple and his people who were indwelt by the Spirit to become his temple upon earth. Well, then Jesus dared to speak of himself as God's new temple replacing the old. He said, I tell you, he declared that one greater than the temple is here. In consequence, although people in the past came together to the temple to meet God in the future, meeting place would be with God himself. Why do you need a temple to meet with God when you have God in the flesh standing right before you? Jesus becomes the place to meet God and the locus of God's presence. Secondly, Jesus said that he would fulfill the law. He was, of course, accused often of disrespect for the law, for example, in relation to the Sabbath, but the scribes and the Pharisees did not understand him. What he did was to contradict the scribal misinterpretations of Moses and so to sweep away the traditions of the elders. But he was never disrespectful to the law itself. As a matter of fact, he did not come to abolish the law, but rather to fulfill it. And he did that in his life. In particular, he, his resolve to lay down his life for us would fulfill all of the priesthood and sacrifice. What Jesus taught then that was that the temple and the law would be superseded, meaning not that they had never been divine gifts in the first place, but that they would find their God-intended fulfillment in him, the Messiah. Jesus was and is himself the replacement of the temple and the fulfillment of the law. There is a tradition uh, alive and well in evangelicalism that sees the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem as a major prophetic event and hope. Why would you want to do that? The once and for all final sacrifice has been presented. The veil in the temple has been rent so that we can now enter in and worship the Father through the Son by the Spirit. And so there we have. But I've got to tell you something. This teaching really incensed the religious crowd. They hated Stephen in the same way they hated Jesus. And let me talk about why for a moment. You know, when you think about the gospel and the reality of the gospel, uh, some very powerful things are said in the Bible regarding that. Um, it is amazing to me how surprising it is to really look at Jesus in the gospels. And his coming did fulfill the prophecies under the Old Testament and Old Covenant but not the expectations of what they expected him to do in the fulfillment. He shattered expectations. Each of the four Gospels in the Bible uniquely give us a Jesus who turns upside down and inside out our intuitive anticipation of who he is and how following him works. 
Like a bad back that needs to return to the chiropractor for straightening out, our understanding of Jesus needs to be straightened out over and over again as our poor spiritual posture throws our perception of him out of line, domesticates him, conforms him to our image rather than transforming us into his. For the grace that comes to us in Jesus Christ is immeasurable. The grace refuses to allow itself to be tethered to any of our innate senses of fairness, reciprocity, and balancing of the scales. There's a sense in which the grace of Jesus is defiant, extremely defiant. Robert Farrar Capone, who was thinking about the Reformation, and this is in your bulletin as the quote, he says, the Reformation was a time when people went blind, staggering drunk, because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old 200-proof grace, a bottle after bottle of pure distillate of Scripture that would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The Reformation was a rediscovery of the gospel of grace because the gospel tends to get lost. D.A. Carson shares a memory. He said, I heard about a Mennonite leader uh, assessing his own movement in this way. One generation of Mennonites cherished the gospel and believed that the entailment of the gospel lay in certain social and political commitments. The next generation assumed the gospel and emphasized the social and political commitments. The present generation identifies itself with social and political commitments while the gospel is variously confessed or disowned. It no longer lies at the center or the heart of the belief system of some who call themselves Mennonites. So the gospel was first cherished, then assumed, then lost. And it can happen so rapidly. Such a process of spiritual devolution is not, of course, limited to a particular branch of the church left in neutral. All of us, and I repeat, all of us tend to slide away from the wonder of the gospel. And so as we think about that, we understand how much we pay tribute to the grace of God with our lips, our hearts are so thoroughly marinated in law that the Christian life must be, of course, one of continually bathing our hearts and our minds in the gospel of grace. We are addicted to the law. It is in our fallen DNA, conforming our lives to a moral framework, playing by the rules, meeting a minimum standard. This is what feels normal to the human heart. And it is how we naturally seek to cure that deep sense of inadequacy that all of us feel within. The real question is not how to avoid becoming a Pharisee. The question is how to recover from being the Pharisee that we already are. Right from the womb. Law feels safe. Grace feels risky. Rule-keeping breeds a sense of control and manageability. Grace feels like moral vertigo. After all, if all that we are is by His grace, then there's no limit to what God can ask of us. 
But if some corner of our virtue is due to personal contribution, there's a ceiling on what God can ask of us. He can only bring us so far. He can only ask us so much. But such is not the call of Jesus Christ. The Jesus of the Gospels defies our domesticated, play-it-by-the-rules morality. It was the most extravagant sinners of Jesus' day that were the most compassionately received and welcomed. It was the most scrupulously law-abiding people who were the objects of the most searing condemnation and denunciation. The point is not that we should therefore take up sin as if we don't already. It is that we should lay down the silly, foolish insistence on leveraging our sense of self-worth with an ongoing moral record. Better a life of sin with penitence than a life of obedience without it. That is, people who are law-driven never repent. Why? Because they can't afford to. They can't admit failure. They can't be wrong. I had a teacher one time, a history professor, who used to say almost every day, he said, well, I might not be right about that, but I want you to know something. I am never wrong. Have you ever been around anybody that's never wrong? Are you attracted to that? I hope not. And that's exactly the kind of thing that Jesus stood against. It's time to enjoy grace in a new and fresh way. Not the little weak-kneed, decaffeinated grace that pats us on the head, that ignores our rebellion, that doesn't change us, but a high-octane grace that takes our conscience by the scruff of the neck and breathes new life into us with a pardon that is so scandalous that we cannot help but be changed. It's time to blow aside the hazy cloud of condemnation that hangs over all of us with the strong wind of gospel grace. Hear Paul's words. You are not under law, but under grace. And Jesus is real grace. And grace is defiant. Life is short. Risk is good. For many of us, the time has come to abandon once and for all our play it safe with toe-dabbling Christianity. Obedience can be damning. You said, what? I said, obedience can be damning. How so? Well, I will tell you so. Paul Tournier, the French psychologist of the last century, helps us see how obedience can be damning. The strange paradox present on every page of the gospel, that is, writing of Jesus' ministry, which we can verify any day, is that it is not guilt which is the obstacle to grace as moralism supposes. On the contrary, it is the repression of guilt, self-justification, genuine self-righteousness and smugness, which is the obstacle. Consequently, before Jesus, there are not two opposed human categories, the guilty and the righteous. There are only the guilty. The deepest distinction among human beings is not between the bad and the good, but between those who know they are bad and those who do not yet. Strangely, it is not the blatantly wicked who have the greatest difficulty seeing this, but the carefully obedient. Jesus consistently exposes the guilt 
of the moral and scrupulous people by proclaiming that all men are equally sinful despite all their efforts and not by showing their vaunted impeccability but by confessing their guilt by repentance will they ever find the grace which erases the guilt. Scrupulous obedience is more often uh, than we are aware thinly veiled disobedience obedience from a wrong motive in the heart therefore can be damning the great surprise of the gospels is that the strange key to participation in the joys of God's kingdom is not qualifying ourselves for it but frankly acknowledging our disqualification a disqualification that manifests itself not only in rule breaking but also in rule keeping. We forget that our righteousness is as filthy rags before the holiness of God. Keeping the rules no more extinguishes the sin in our hearts than buckets of gasoline extinguish the flames in our fireplace. And so rather than looking for a way to manage our morality, we throw ourselves upon the mercy of God. And religious people hate this. Why? Because they can't one-up anymore. You ever been around somebody that one-ups you all the time? I hate telling this story because my wife, one time I was talking to her about I couldn't stand to be around people who always had to one-up you. She said, yeah, that sounds a lot like you. I, I didn't really like that. I, I didn't need to hear that, but I had to hear it. Why do people one-up? And it's really bad in the church, if you listen carefully, how people try to one-up each other. Oh, I heard this great sermon by Dr. Bottlesnopper or whoever. Somebody who's the most amazing preacher I've ever heard. Oh, no, but I heard so-and-so, and he was even better than him. And it's just like, you know, climbing the ladder of moral smugness. And we all do it, and we all do it in different ways. But what is it that qualifies me for the kingdom? The fact that I come by the grace of God and his work in my heart to see that I'm totally disqualified to kingdom. Who was it? Groucho Marx that said, I would never join a club that allowed people like me to be a member. That's kind of how it works in the church. He had a remarkable insight there. And so that's what's going on. Stephen by here's what's going to happen if you read the book of acts and we've been looking at it really carefully and closely through the first six chapters and what we have seen is the emphasis upon the preaching because there's primarily a jewish audience has been what the messiah has come scripture has been fulfilled jesus is messiah and the proof of that is he's resurrected from the dead. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is busy, actively seated with authority, uh, interceding for us. But now the gospel is about to move into people who have no Old Testament background. And it's about to move into real sinners, the Gentiles. And so the emphasis shifts from the Old Covenant and all the expectations intended around the Old Covenant to the reality of the New Covenant. Which leads me to one last thing before we're done. In Peter's preaching of the gospel so far in Acts, up until now, the themes of works versus faith has been muted. 
Stephen evidently pressed home that Jesus is our temple. That means Jesus is our cleanness before God. Jesus had fulfilled the law, so we are now saved, not saved through law keeping. What Jesus taught was that the temple and the law would be superseded and they would find their God intended fulfillment in him. Jesus is the replacement of the temple and the fulfillment of the law. And this kind of language is always interpreted as lawlessness by religious people when they first hear it. No wonder Stephen got killed. I had a good friend who planted a church in another state in the Bible Belt. And I mean, this, this may not be the buckle of the Bible Belt, but it's the first hole by the buckle. And uh, I asked him, I said, what did you learn from your experience about planting a church in this particular Bible Belt state? And he said, I never knew how many religious people hate the gospel. They hate it. They're incensed by it because it takes away everything they've been building their record on. It literally destroys in one fell swoop the whole basis of their relationship with God, the whole foundation of it. And once that's exposed, they either repent and call out for mercy or go for your throat. That's when true persecution happens because you're taking away that by which they have lorded it over other people. But it is interesting, and I close with this, that Stephen's face shone radiantly, verse 15, just as Moses' face shone when he came down from Mount Sinai with the law in Exodus 34. Was this God's way to show Stephen's message of the gospel was not dishonoring the law, but the very message of God? Is it possible that Paul had Stephen and Moses in mind when he said that the giving of the law came with such glory that no one could look upon Moses' brightness? But that the gospel message brings an even greater radiance. The themes that Stephen hits upon were brought to tremendous development in the ministry of Paul. And you'll see that he's standing there watching the stoning. His gospel presentation heavily depends on these ideas far more than the writings of John or Peter. For example, probably the young Saul, though he gave consent to Stephen's death, never forgot the sermon. It sank deep into his heart. Stephen had a very brief, short ministry. But through his impact on Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle, he has influenced millions. So we must remember as we minister that we might be the instrument of reaching someone who will be much more productive for Jesus Christ than we will ever be. Yes, reaching just one person might be the main thing we do for the kingdom in our entire lifetime. I think of the lay Methodist preacher preaching to Charles Haddon Spurgeon and his conversion ensuing. He was a lay preacher, and yet God used him to bring to faith a very fruitful and powerful preacher. But with God's help and wisdom, it will be enough. And so what we're seeing unfold in the book of Acts is the beginning separation 
of the new covenant expression of the people of God from the old covenant. The old covenant is obsolete. The icons of the Old Testament uh, are now obsolete through fulfillment of Jesus. And the new covenant people of God are beginning to grow and prosper as a result of the preaching of the gospel. You think about that with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this text uh, and for the realities that it opens to us. We all know that the gospel is counterintuitive, but it is incredibly counterintuitive. And it's so easy for us to lose it and to substitute something else for it. We pray that as Martin Luther advocated, we beat it into our heads continually, that we think about it, that we indwell it and have it indwell us because the gospel is Jesus and our union with him and all his benefits. Since we have him, we have everything he is, except for deity. Now, Father, continue to bless us as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.